Hey, today we have a very special guest. He is the founder of the Hope Generation. He has a global TV and radio program. He is the author of three books, and he's spoken here many times before. Can we please welcome back Ben Corson? Love you, dude. Thank you. Can we give a big round of applause to the worship team? That was so beautiful. It just ensconces us with peace and hope and joy. And I'm really excited to uh, go deep with you guys tonight. We're just going to hit the ground running. We have a lot of territory to cover. You guys are currently in Luke 15. So would you turn with me in your Bible, if you have one, to Luke chapter 15. And um, we're not just going to skim off the top. We're going to plumb the deeps. Now, by way of introduction... In Bible nursery classes, we were often taught that the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. Have you ever heard that before? That the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. So for instance, when Jesus was standing at the tomb of his beloved friend Lazarus, the shortest verse in the Bible, or so we've been taught, is Jesus wept. Now that is true if you're reading the Bible in English. But what you have to remember is the New Testament was written in Greek. In the Greek language, the original New Testament, the shortest verse in the Bible is not Jesus wept. The shortest verse of the Bible is rejoice evermore, which is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Which is so interesting because it's been said that brevity is the wit of genius. And this pithy uh, uh, verse packs a powerful punch. This short idea that Jesus wept can sometimes be like the 140 character description Twitter bio of Jesus, that he was the sorrowful servant, the suffering savior. But actually the shortest verse in the Bible that sums up how life is to be lived best of all is in 1 Thessalonians 5 when it says rejoice evermore. In the original Greek, Jesus wept is 16 characters, but rejoice evermore is 14 characters. So if brevity is the wit of genius and we're looking for something short to pack a powerful proverbial pithy punch, then we live our life not by weeping, but by joy, because weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We go through the Jesus wept to the Pauline rejoice evermore. We go through crucifixion Black Friday to Easter egg dying, bunny hopping, Jesus Christ resurrecting Easter Sunday. Come on. That's how we live with joy. Now, some of you here might be saying, Ben, I don't feel capable of joy. And that's what we're going to see as a common thread through the treatise of truth in Luke 15. Some of you say, I'm going through really bad times. How do I rejoice evermore? I'm a big fan of the Navy SEALs. I love recon for Marines, paratroopers. I love MI5, Navy SEAL Team 6, going all DEFCON 1, Delta Force. But my favorite branch of the military to study overall is... uh, of course, the Navy when it comes to the SEALs. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but to become a Navy SEAL, you have to go through a week in San Diego's Coronado Beach called Hell Week. This is part of the training. And when they're going through this training, they actually have to lay in the ocean together and they catch hypothermia. So these Navy SEALs in training, these big, strong men, will actually link arms together to try to get any warmth they can as they're laying in the Coronado Beach water as the ebb and tide is lapping over them. And this is kind of crude, but they actually hope the guy next to them goes to the bathroom. You say, why? Because that warms them up. 
That's how desperate they are for warmth. They're always cold, wet, and miserable. And to become a Navy SEAL, that's what they, the sergeants say. You have to love being miserable. Being cold, met, wet, and miserable is not nine to five. That's the rest of your life. They have to go through uh, doing moving push-ups, carrying logs. Uh, and in fact, it's pretty crazy, but they undergo 96 hours of sleep deprivation during that week. 96 hours of sleep deprivation. Uh, so what happens is if they're rewarded with good behavior, they'll, uh, they'll be awarded like a 10-minute nap standing up with their eyes open. <laughs> but it's called a nap. But they have this thing the Navy SEALs do, a trick to help them through training. It's called cognitive restructuring. Would everyone say cognitive? Let's try that again. Would everyone with a little more gusto say cognitive restructuring? This psychological trick called cognitive restructuring is when a Navy SEAL is going through hell, he will actually say, good times. Would everyone say, good times? So if they're getting shot at, they say, good times. If they're getting hypothermia, they say, good times. If they're doing moving push-ups, they say, good times. Because when they speak these words, through neuroplasticity, they begin to reshape the neural pathways in their brain, in their psychological constitution and cranial package, and they actually convince themselves that they are in good times. It's interesting, the Bible was doing this thousands of years ago. The prophet Joel said, let the weak say, I am strong. So what I see is not going to determine what I say, and what I feel is not going to dictate my mantra. The Navy SEALs, through cognitive restructuring, even if they're getting shot at, will say, good times, and that actually convinces their brain that they're going through good times. Why? Because the power of life and death is in the tongue. In fact, you use 72 muscles every time you use your tongue. It's a strong little muscle, but it's also powerful poetically. What you say actually can shape the course of your life. It was through words that God shaped worlds in the book of Genesis. So you might feel like the, I'm the Jesus wept kind of person, but you can't stay there. You've got to choose to, through cognitive restructuring, say, I'm going to rejoice evermore because joy is a choice. The book of James says, count it all joy. Hope is not hype, nor is it a feeling. It is based on the facts that God has been faithful in my past, so I'm going to be faith-filled about my future, and I'm going to be fulfilled today because God has never failed anyone, so we ain't going to start with me. So even when I'm going through the fire, I'm going to say good times because that fiery tribulation does not burn me. That fiery tribulation forges me because God is a consuming fire who never burns what I am. He only burns what I am not. And when I go through the fire, I'm not going to hear medium rare. I'm going to hear well done, good and faithful servant. So yes, I will rejoice evermore no matter what I go through. This is something that the eldest son in the story of the prodigal had to learn firsthand. What it meant to rejoice evermore, to make merry, and to be glad instead of throwing a pity party. Let's take a look at how to rejoice evermore. In Luke chapter 15, we'll be starting in verse 22. This is pretty close to where you guys left off. Jesus here telling the parable about the prodigal son. Uh, remember, just quick backdrop, the prodigal son had wasted all his money on booze, binging, and babes. He ended up in the pig's pen. He wanted to eat pig slop because he became so poor after his excessive, extravagant living. He realized that evil 
always takes you further than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it costs more than you ever thought you had to pay. So he says to himself, maybe I should just go home. He rehearses this speech to himself. Maybe I should go home and say, Father, it is better to be a servant in your house than to be out here in the world by myself. So he decides to repent, not because he's even genuine, but because he needed a job. So he comes back to his father. The father runs out to meet him. The only time you see God, the father in a hurry, remember 106 times the Bible says, wait for God. The only time you see God in a hurry is in Luke 15. And that's when the father runs out to meet his son. Because normally we see God as being very slow and patient. Like to him, a year is a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. The Bible says we don't have like a crock pot. God, we have a hot pot or pardon me. We don't have a hot pocket. God, we have a crock pot kind of God. When he caught cooks up plans for your life, it takes time for them to marinate. That's why like Abraham had to wait 25 years for his promise to come to pass after Abraham patiently endured. The Bible says he obtained the promise. Joseph was given a dream at 17, didn't come to pass till 30. David was anointed king at 15. He didn't gain the throne till he was 30. Jesus had to do 30 years of training in private before he began his public ministry. All throughout the scriptures, we see these characters had to wait a long time before their destiny was fulfilled. So God is often like a crock pot kind of God. His plans have to marinate. It takes time. But in this story, we see more of the hot pocket God coming out. Like, do you ever cook Hot Pockets and you burn your mouth on the Hot Pockets? Because even though it only takes two minutes to make them in the microwave, you're not willing to wait the extra 30 seconds required to let them cool off. We live in a microwave generation. So God does not live in a culture of switches after the Industrial Revolution. He lives in, an, in, an, in a place of seeds, agriculture. That's why 90% of Jesus's parables were nature-based. It's all about seeds and reaping and sowing. It takes patience. But God the Father, for the first time, is painted as being impatient. God the Father, for the first time, is shown as in a hurry. Why? Because in this story, he is in a hurry to get to his son, to hug him, even though the son's heart was slow to repentance the father's heart were, the feet were swift to grace. He was in a hurry to embrace his son. And that's where we leave off. The father embraces the prodigal son. And the father said to his servants, if you would follow along, this is Luke 15, 22. Bring out, I love this, the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. Would everyone say, be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Everyone say, be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Would everyone say, music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. 
And yet you never gave me a goat that I might make merry. Everyone say, make merry with my friends. But (laughs) this guy's attitude is unbelievable. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry. Everyone say, make merry. And be glad. Everyone say, be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. The father says to the son, the Pharisee, the older brother of the prodigal, should we not be glad and make merry? That which is lost is now found. Love lost has been rediscovered. That which is dead has been raised to life. Because Jesus is always in the business of causing the lame to leap, the blind to see, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear, and the dead to raise. So he says, this is a time of music and dancing. Should we not be glad? Now, a few things I want to point out from this text. Number one, look at how it says the older brother heard the music and the dancing. Now, it's one thing to see dancing, but when you hear dancing, you know they're really turning up. He didn't just see the dancing. He was out in the fields when he heard the dancing. He's like, okay, somebody's turning up in there. So this wasn't like a tame, civil Fortune 500 company party. This is, they are going nuts. Like they are making merry. They are glad. The music is so loud that the brother can hear it from out in the fields. He hears the dancing. So the older brother comes to his father and he says, dad, this is not fair. Here's my brother who wasted all of your inheritance back then when the younger son said to the father, give me my inheritance. He was basically saying in that culture, you are are dead to me. So I want you to treat me as though you're dead to me. Give me my inheritance. It was a big slap in the face to his father. The younger son says, give me my inheritance. You're dead to me in effect. The father gives him his inheritance. He wastes all the money on booze, binging babes, ends up in a pig pen wanting to eat pig slop because he's so poor and broke, comes back to the father, says, I'm sorry. The father races out, runs out in a hurry to meet him, kills the fatted calf, modern day language, gives him Ruth's Chris Steakhouse with extra high and 57 sauce, gives him nice sandals, a nice robe, signet ring for his fingers. And I love this. The Bible says the father gave him shoes for his feet. Why? That's significant. The Old Testament was about taking off your shoes for this is holy ground. The New Testament is the father gives the prodigal shoes for his feet because he is now worthy to stand as a son in his presence. Well, the older brother hears about this and he didn't spend all his money on harlots. He didn't waste his father's inheritance. He didn't slap his dad in the face and say, you're as good as dead to me. I want my heritage now. Give me the money. I didn't go spend my money on gambling and riotous living. And he says to the father, dad, I hear all this music and dancing. You're throwing a party for the prodigal son. What about me? I love what he says. Watch this. In our text, he said, you never killed a goat for me and my friends. Now that shows us something about his character. Back then, if you ate a goat, that meant you were poor. A goat was a poor man's meal. It was, it was a mean, uh, sparse fare. Ultimately, a fatted calf 
was what the father had available. And yet, what did the son expect? Nothing but a goat. Why? Because he doubted the benevolence of his dad. He thought, you never gave me a fatted calf. Or pardon me, you never gave me a goat. When the father was willing to give a fatted calf, nobody says, yes, we're going to eat a goat. But a lot of people say, I can't wait for that five-course meal with the steak. The father gave the prodigal steak, and yet the older brother, he was expecting nothing more than a goat. Poor fare. What that shows us is the father is more ready to give than we are to ask. And the problem is not that our dreams are too big, but that they're too small. We just want a goat when he wants to give us a fatted calf. Now, it just so happened that I happen to be coming this week when the text I've been assigned, this text, includes my favorite verse in the New Testament. My favorite verse in the New Testament is Luke 15.31. Would you look at Luke 15.31? This is literally my favorite verse. The father says, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. Remember, the dad represents the God character. Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. How do we live this life of music, dancing, merrymaking, cognitive restructuring, good times, rejoice evermore? How do we live this lifestyle of being merry uh, and, and, and being glad, as our text tells us time and again? It's when we understand the nature of our father in heaven, that his heart is that everything he has would belong to us, that we are always with him. Now I want to talk about this. The first thing the father says in Luke 15, 31 is you are always with me. Now this is an echo chamber for the new covenant found in the book of Hebrews, where God says, Your sins and iniquities I remember no more. I have written my laws on the table of your heart. You will be my people and I will be your God. In this text, the father tells the older son, the elder brother of the prodigal, you are always with me. You are always with me. A lot of people ask me, Ben, what can I do to get closer to God? I tell them, nothing. (laughs) You can't do anything to get closer to God. And then they get discouraged. They're like, you mean I can't get closer to God? No. Before they get too sad, I say, but here's the B clause. The Bible says you are the temple for the Holy Spirit. So God lives inside you. How can you get any closer to a God who's already living inside you? You, this is good news. Yay. Woohoo. Yippee. You can't get any closer to God who's already is living inside you. You say, man, I feel so far off from God. Since when are you supposed to rely on your feelings? We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Even salt looks like sugar and your senses can deceive you. Oh, I feel so far away from God. Well, good news. You're not because of the temple for the Holy Spirit, God lives inside you. So how can you get any closer to a God who's already living inside you? All you need to do is let God love on you and stop expecting goats and start believing for fatted calves. Are we dropping veritable bars yet? This is big stuff. You are always with me. And then the next is my favorite. He says, everything I have is yours. 
So God from heaven is looking down at his children and he's saying, everything I have is yours. You are not orphans. You are children of the most high God. You are not strays. You are kids of the king. You are not a carbon footprint. You are forced to be reckoned with. You are not merely swirling protons. You are a pronoun. And as a child of the most high God, the father says, everything I have is already yours. And if we will negotiate and navigate our life in such a way as to believe that everything the Father has belongs to us, then suddenly we will live out the promise of the book of Psalms, which says, the earth God hath given to the sons of men. And we will make merry, we will be glad, we will cue the music and the dancing, and we will rejoice evermore. And no matter what we're going through, cognitive restructuring vibes will say, good times. And unlike the older brother who was sulking, we'll be like the younger brother partying. Let's go. (laughs) Oh gosh, I don't know if anyone else is excited about this, but I'm pretty pumped. The earth he's given to the sons of men. This is your destiny. You say, okay, everything the father has is already mine. How does this work out practically in my life. Well, let me just say, I really need this, this text today. I'm kind of preaching to myself. I just learned a few weeks ago that, um, I, I sometimes I feel like my family has the Corson curse. You know, the Kennedy curse where, uh, Joe Jr. was supposed to be president and he died in a plane crash. And then JFK, pardon me. Uh, yeah, JFK took his spot. He ran for president one but his last words in Dallas were, see how much Texas loves us, and then he got shot. So then his brother Bobby took his place. Bobby ran for president, and then he got shot. So then Ted Kennedy was supposed to be the president, but Chapitiquich happened, and that was a PR nightmare when the girl he was driving with suffocated, and he didn't give her the necessary help, and so he became the line of the Senate, but he couldn't become president. And uh, the, the sort of rhetoric and syntax projected upon the Kennedy family is this moniker and sobriquet that you may have heard, curse of the Kennedys. Well, in kind of church circles, there's like a morbid joke right now that my family has that, that there's like the Corson curse. Because I don't know if you're aware, I, I don't want to like be a bleeding heart and go deep in this right now, but like my dad's first wife died. My sister died. Um, I went through 10 years of chronic depression with suicidal, even took up a knife to kill myself, but God like rescued me and gave me hope. That's why I'm so passionate about it. Um, A few years ago, I went through a romantic heartbreak that after an eight year relationship that just left me blindsided, like hit by a semi truck. I didn't even see it coming. And then two weeks ago, uh, we were just told that my brother has a few weeks left to live. So now my brother is, um, what the doctors are telling us is soon going to join my sister in heaven. And you go through a lot of stuff in life and the path becomes very binary. Either you're going to retreat and withdraw into yourself or you are, going to, you are going to choose joy. I believe, as the Navy SEALs say, that anything worth doing is worth overdoing. So I say, we are not just going to be sort of optimistic. We're definitely not going to be pessimists. We are going to be absurdly extreme, hopeful, optimistic misfits who are nonconformist adventurers raging against despair. We are going to live with reckless, abandoned, childlike wonder and unapologetic 
optimism. We are going to make merry. We are going to be glad. We are going to dance because weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning and vanilla never changed the world. There is no such thing as a moderate revolutionary. So we are going to be extremists when it comes to hope. We are going to believe that everything the father has belongs to us. So we are going to choose joy in the face of our trials. Now you might say, Ben, you're going through stuff, but so am I. Here's the truth. There's no course and curse. In the world, you will have tribulation. We all are going through stuff. Every one of you are going through stuff. So what does it mean when the Bible says, the father declares to the son, everything I have is already yours. So make merry and be glad. Well, this is what the father has promised you. The father has promised you healing. He has promised you the ability to stomp on storms. He has promised you the capacity for rest, the capability to work in a way that matters, to rewrite your narrative, to live with zero shame, to create the world into a Neo-Eden and to inherit the kingdom and to accept that all his promises are yes and amen. Now, let me go through these. Uh, Number one, he's promised you healing. The Bible says that God is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. The Bible says that in heaven, he will wipe away all tears from our eyes and we're going to eat from the healing fruits of the new heaven and the new earth. Here's what's interesting. Jesus did three miracles in the city of Jerusalem. Three miracles. He healed a blind man at the pool of Siloam, a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, And he raised himself from the dead. Those are the three miracles that the gospel writers tell us in the stories of Jesus doing miracles. Now, one of those miracles was effectively a miracle he did on himself, i.e. raising from the dead. But the only other miracles he ever did in Jerusalem as the king of the Jews was healing a blind man and healing a paralyzed man. Why is that interesting? Because in the Old Testament, remember, this happened in Jerusalem, In the Old Testament, David, who founded the city of Jerusalem, attacked the Jebusites who were inhabiting a city called Jebus. Jebus was originally the city that David conquered and then renamed Jerusalem. That's why the people of Jerusalem came from, effectively, the city of Jebus, where the Jebusites lived. The Jebusites began to taunt David, and they said... Even the lame and the blind could stop you. You will not enter this city. That was their trash talk. The lame and the blind will stop you. You will not conquer Jebus. So what does David do? He conquers the city. And in spite of their taunts that even the lame and the blind could stop you, he conquers Jebus and turns it into Jerusalem. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the son of David. Just as David could not be stopped by the lame and the blind to conquer the city despite their taunts when he overcame the Jebusites and founded Jerusalem, so to the son of David, Jesus, the two miracles, the only two miracles he did for other people in Jerusalem were this. He healed the lame and the blind. So while the physical David took care of the physical needs of the city and conquered Jerusalem. The spiritual son of David 
came to take care of the spiritual needs as he healed the lame and the blind in Jerusalem, thus fulfilling his mission to be king. Even the lame and the blind cannot stop you, they said to King David. But the son of David comes into Jerusalem, and what are the two miracles he does in Jerusalem? He heals the lame and the blind. Because he received his inheritance as the son of David, which was to be the king of the Jews. And just as Jesus healed in Jerusalem by conquering the spiritual needs of the city, so too, watch this, the earth he has given to the sons of men, God wants to heal you, turns you into more than a conqueror. In the Greek, it's literally super overcomer. And he is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals, who applies the healing balm of Gilead to your wounds. He promises you healing, whether it's in this life or in the life to come. There's the promise of healing. Not only does he promise us healing as we see in the King David and the son of David, but he also promises us the ability to stomp on storms. Say, what do you mean? Well, we're all going through storms. We're all going through trials. It's difficult to say good times. It's difficult to rejoice evermore. It's difficult to be glad and make merry as our text says. But when we understand that everything the father has is already ours, we have the ability to stomp on storms. You say, what do you mean? Jesus found himself in several storms in the New Testament. But if you read all the Gospels, you'll find a common narrative and denominator, a thesis thread running through the treatise of truth. Watch this. In the Gospel stories, Jesus either stilled the storm, sternly rebuked the storm, strolled and stomped on the storm, or slept in the storm. Romans 8 says we are joint heirs with Christ and heirs of God, which means that as Jesus said, you will do even greater things than I have done. Storms become our stomping grounds. So the very thing we think is meant to drown us is the very platform upon which we will walk in the miraculous, just as Peter walked on the waves in Matthew 14. Because we know the Father says, everything I have is already yours. Romans 8 says we are heirs of God, join heirs with Christ. Our inheritance is the kingdom. Like Jesus, we can stomp on our storms. Number three, I love this one. Work, work and rest. The Bible teaches that we can not only inherit storms as stomping grounds, not only do we inherit healing, but because everything the Father has is ours, we can be merry and be glad because we know that he ultimately promises us rest. There's this story in John 9 where Jesus spits on the ground to make clay. And he puts the clay on a blind man's eyes and the blind man in the story can suddenly see. Now, why did he spit? Back then, they believed that spit had medicinal properties and could cure people. If that were true, I would heal the front row every time. (laughs) The Roman historian Tacitus talks about the emperor Vespasian healing a sick guy with his spit because back then they believed spit could heal people. In fact, when you cut your finger, what's the first thing you do? You stick it in your mouth. When you burn your finger on a stove, you stick it in your mouth. You put spit on it. So too back then they believed that spit would heal people. So Jesus was putting his firm approval on medicine. That was the healing medicinal properties of his day. Spits in the ground puts clay in the man's eyes the guy can see. Now, here's what's interesting. Three times in John 9, we're told that Jesus made clay on the Sabbath. That was against the law. 
You were not allowed to make clay on the Sabbath in that culture because making clay was considered work. Why? Because what did the Israelites do for 400 years when they worked for Pharaoh with no Sabbath day and never a day of rest, a day off? What were they doing for four centuries? They were making clay to do what? To build Pharaoh's pyramids. So when Jesus on the Sabbath makes clay, he's saying, I am doing the work on your day of rest so you don't have to make clay as a slave any longer. So I'm actually breaking the law because I fulfill the law and I am the end of the law, as Paul says. So I work in order that you may rest. But if you want to do the work, I'll take off my hands and rest. I suggest you let me make clay on the Sabbath so you don't have to because when I work, you rest. That's how it works. So he promises us rest. The book of Hebrews says we can enter into the rest. We live in a culture of capitalistic upward mobility consumerism where we feel like the wheel breaks the butterfly and we have to work our fingers to the bone. But let us not forget that the book of Hebrews teaches labor to enter into the rest. The father says, make merry, be glad. Everything I have is yours. I make clay on the Sabbath so that you can rest and you don't have to build those pyramids anymore. (laughs) Big stuff. Here's another one. The Lord promises that when you do work, your work has purpose. Viktor Frankl, the founder of Logotherapy said, we have means, but no meaning. We have enough to live by, but not enough to live for. Oftentimes we can feel like our work is meaningless. But remember, Adam was called to work before the fall. Adam was destined to be a gardener before he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because work is not a curse. Work is a blessing. In fact, the kingdom of heaven is a place where we rule over cities, Jesus said. There's going to be more work. Work is not the curse. It's working by the sweat of your brow. It's the labor pangs. That's the curse. So Adam, after he ate from the tree, was expelled from the garden to work by the sweat of his brow. But watch this. Romans teaches that Jesus is the last Adam who went back into the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and the first place, the last Adam, that's what Jesus is called, the last Adam, the first place he bled was from the sweat of his brow. Why? To reverse the curse and redeem man's work because his blood signifies redemption. So the first Adam was expelled from the garden to work by the sweat of his brow. The last Adam goes back into the garden, bleeds by the sweat of his brow to reverse the curse and redeem man's work. So now we know all of our work has meaning. The Bible says, whatever you put your hand to, do it with all your might. Not only this, watch this. We have a rewritten narrative, not only the ability to rest, Not only the ability to have meaningful work, not only the ability to stomp on storms, not only the ability to be healed, but we also have the opportunity for a rewritten narrative. You remember Jesus when he was a baby was taken to Egypt and there in Egypt, he fled from the wrath of Herod who killed all the children under two when he committed genocide and infanticide. Jesus then returns from Egypt, passes through the Jordan River to wander in a wilderness for 40 days. Why? Matthew tells us this story because he wrote to a Jewish audience. He was rewriting Israel's narrative. Israel was taken to Egypt as a baby country, wandered through a wilderness for 40 years after passing through water, the Red Sea. 
So Jesus, watch this, he rewrites Israel's narrative and he's taken to Egypt as a baby, passes through water, the Jordan River to wander in a wilderness for 40 days to rewrite Israel's narrative. And so too, if you feel like you've lost the plot, he wants to rewrite your narrative. Or here's another one. He wants to give you zero shame. And I'm drawing to a close here. Watch this. He wants to give you zero shame. There's this story of Jesus encountering a demoniac. He says, what is your name? The demon replies, we are legion for we are many. And Jesus casts out the demon from the man and frees him. Interesting. The Roman occupation consisted of militia groups called legions in the first century that were Israel's greatest shame. So when Jesus cast out the demon named Legion from the man, he was casting out Israel's greatest shame because the legion armies reminded them that they had lost the war and they were slaves in an occupied territory. So Jesus, by casting out Legion, the demon, from the man, was symbolically casting out Israel's greatest shame, which was the legionary armies in the first century. Or how about this one? Jesus hung out with animals. This shows us that we inherit Eden. Watch this. Jesus hung out with animals. Remember when Adam named all the animals in Eden? Back in that culture, to name something was to have ownership over it. So when Adam was naming the animals, he was conquering the earth and subduing it as the image of God. That was his destiny. So Jesus, the Bible says he was in a desert. It was called the Valley of Jeshimon, and he was ministered to by animals. Why is that interesting? Because Romans says Jesus is the last Adam, as we saw. He's hanging out with the animals. Why? Because he is Adam, as it were, reborn. He's saying this is what Adam was meant to do, to be at peace with all of creation. In fact, this happened in a desert when Jesus was hanging out in peace with the animals to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy that the lion, the wolf, the lamb, and the sheep would lay down together. A child would stick his hand in a snake's den and not be harmed. The young will lead them and all of creation, which is groaning for redemption, will finally be at peace. This all happens in a desert. Why is that interesting? Because the name Eden can be translated either desert or delight. What does Jesus do? He turns the desert into a delight. He turns the valley of Jeshimon, devastation, into Eden because that's what God can do in our life. He can take our worst deserts and turn them into our greatest delights. And here's the last one. What do we inherit as kids of the king? Everything the father has is ours. Good times, we can rejoice and be glad because we also inherit, most importantly, the kingdom of God itself. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was baptized at 30? The reason Jesus was baptized at 30 was because in Jewish culture, when a man turned 30, he inherited everything his father had. That's why Jesus never did a miracle until he turned 30. Jesus said, fear not little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Your kingdom come to earth as it is above. You are heirs of God and joiners with Christ. Jesus inherited everything his father had at 30. In my father's house are many mansions and he brought those mansions down to earth. Your kingdom come below even as it is above. And Jesus gives us the kingdom.
So when, as we've looked through all the scriptures just now, we've flown 30,000 feet up and seen a lot of different Bible passages. What this is showing us is the reason we can be merry, the reason we can be glad, the reason we can rejoice evermore is because the father says to us, his sons, Luke 15, everything I have is yours. Healing, stomping on storms, rest, meaningful work, a rewritten narrative, zero shame, Eden reincarnate, the kingdom of God itself. It all belongs to us. So what our destiny is, is to go about the business of low-key world domination and say, we are going to spread the good news. We are going to rejoice. We're not going to be the older brother, sour and dour. We have too many Christians who look like they got baptized in lemon juice. We have too many Christians who look like they got baptized in prune juice. We should be like the younger brother and say, I was lost. Now I have found everything the father has is already mine. I am always with him. He lives inside of me. So I'm going to go about the business of low-key world domination. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you so much that we can make merry. We can be glad because we are always with you. And everything the father has belongs to us. I know we went deep into a lot of scripture tonight. But I pray that we would go away with this simple commandment of Paul to rejoice evermore. That that simple definition would define and describe how we live our lives. That the world would hear the music and dancing and be brought in to the household. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand with me?